Our word this morning is from Joshua, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 7. That's right, right? Good, good, okay. That's good. Good. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the Lord of the, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So, when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks uh, throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at a dam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Let us hear the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you for reading. And once again, thank you all for welcoming me and Lauren here. It's a privilege 
and I don't say that as a formality at all. It's been great to meet some of you all and have a chance to talk. Uh, and it's also my joy and my privilege to share with you all a passage that has meant a lot to me, especially in the past few months. Uh, so from Joshua 3 and 4, uh, we're going to be considering God's presence among his people. And my hope is that you'll leave here encouraged and freshly aware of God's activity in your life. So what we're trying to do is we're attempting to deepen our perspective and our understanding of the Lord's activity in our lives. So now when we talk about presence, uh, we can really go any number of ways. It's a big topic. It's a really big topic. Uh, we can talk about providence. Uh, we could talk about God's upholding the universe or his sovereign guidance of history and his involvement in human events. All those things, they can rightly be considered under a discussion of God's presence. And all those things really do teach us an astounding fact about God. And that it's his presence is not static, but he's a living an active God. And where God is present, he is present as Lord. So but this morning, we're going to narrow down that scope a little bit, and we're going to specifically consider God's presence among his people. So you see, this, this Lord, our God, he calls people into fellowship with him, and he intimately and uniquely relates to his people, even when we might not recognize it. So we might call this presence his covenant presence. And just by covenant, all I mean there is we simply mean it's just an act by where God commits himself to his people and he enters into a deep, loving relationship with his people, one in which he redeems and we obey and we flourish under his rule. So as we'll see, hopefully, is that this should give us great comfort. It should give us great courage, and it should stir our hearts to rejoice and to obey God. So here's the main point. This is, this is what we're going after in the next few minutes. It's the living God is uniquely present among his people. So remember his mighty works. But here's the thing. We don't always recognize his presence or remember his works and that's because we are prone to forgetfulness. You see, we have a tendency to forget even the most basic truths. It's, it's not just bad memory, but there's just all kinds of intellectual pressures and social pressures that perhaps they cause us to doubt God. Or maybe it can be technology that not only distracts us, but it also informs the way that we think or it can be maybe our anxieties that turn us away from God, that gear or shift our focus in different directions, or our pursuits, our pursuits whether good or bad. Or maybe it's just busy schedules, just our everyday lives. We've got kids to take care of. We've got work to go to. If you're a student, you have classes. There's just so much going on that can drown our thoughts about God out. So there's countless things vying for our attention that cause us to lose focus on our highest good 
and that which should inform our manner of being the most, the thing that is most worthy of our attention, and that is the Lord. You see, forgetfulness, it's not, it's not an obvious enemy. It comes in slowly, and it's unnoticed. And over time, it's gonna have devastating consequences. <laughs> Man, is it hard to fight. It is hard to fight. The people of God, they need constant reminders of his mighty works. And he has graciously given us those reminders. We just have to look for them. We just need to be aware of them. And that's where this story comes in. The story of the Israelites is really, really helpful here. So before we dive into the text a little bit deeper, we're gonna set the stage just really quick. So we're jumping into the Israelites' camp on the eve of the crossing of the Jordan River. So you see, under Moses, Israel sinned, and they didn't take the land that God had promised them. And as a result, they just spent the past 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. And then now, where we're at, leadership is transitioned from Moses to Joshua, and the Israelites are poised to take the land once again and the only thing separating them is the Jordan River. So here in this story, we see God's covenant presence, his presence among his people in action. And we see the need and the importance to remember his works. So our outline is a simple one. It's just gonna be two points and they're taken directly from the text. So first in Joshua chapter three, seven through 17, we're gonna see that God is uniquely present to act among his people. And then we're gonna turn over to chapter four and we're gonna see that we are to remember these mighty works. So that's God's unique presence among his people and remembering his works. First, God's unique presence among his people. So these miracle accounts in scripture should be a great, a great encouragement to us. You see, when we read scripture, we're never just told of a miracle, but there's instances like these where God acts among his people to redeem and to reveal his character. These are high acts of redemption and high acts of revelation. So to get a better feel of this, a better understanding of this, we're gonna look at the structure of the passage we're actually gonna look and see what this passage tells us about the Lord. So first off, the story should sound pretty familiar because these events, they mirror the account of the Exodus from Egypt. So as we just read, or as we just said, uh, the Israelites, they're slaves in Egypt. Moses led them out of Egypt and God miraculously split the Red Sea. The people crossed through and eventually they're brought to the edge of the promised land, but they sinned and they refused to take the land. But in our passage, the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness and God raises up Joshua as their leader. He miraculously splits the Jordan River as we read, the people cross over and they have another chance to take the land. So you see that those two events set in parallel from one another, what we have here is a second chance. And this makes a definitive 
profound statement about the grace and about the faithfulness of God to his people. You see, though his people sin and though we sin, God graciously upholds his promises. You know, he's teaching his people that what he reveals in his word and what he says he will do, he's gonna do it. And the people repent and God forgives. And in all of this, he is still present to act among his people. So here we are, where we're coming in, the eve of the Jordan crossing. And the text, it's really, the way this is written, it's meant to immerse you here. So as you read, there, there should be a feeling of anticipa- anticipation. We're not quite sure what's going to happen. There's a suspense before the crossing of the Jordan River. They come through and there is a somberness. There's a gravity to the halting of the waters. And then later on at the monument, there's just this sense of reverence at this monument. So as you're reading, put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine waiting 40 years to receive a promise? You know, we can hardly wait for an upcoming vacation or a weekend or lunch after church. And I always think of those times as as a kid when it's Christmas Eve and you're trying to sleep and you can't because you're so excited because you know in the morning something so great is awaiting you. That's what they're feeling here. So imagine waiting 40 years. And so the people of Israel, they're wandering the wilderness and perhaps they're, they're thinking about, you know, what could have been? What if we had done things differently? Maybe they're wrestling with regret or, you know, they're anticipating the future. They can't wait for that day when they can enter the land once again. And all the while, they're just seeing the previous generation just pass away one by one by one, as time slowly moves to this very moment. And here we are, night before, the camp, it's buzzing with anticipation. And in verse five, just a little bit before our passage, we see Joshua addressing the people and he says this, he instructs the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So you can only imagine the, the excitement, maybe even the nerves as this 40-year-long chapter in Israel's history, it's about to close. So what's even more striking about this passage is its focus on the Lord. It's focus on the Lord. So it's common in the book of Joshua, when you hear sermons or read commentaries, it's common for, it, uh, for there to be a, be a study of leadership. Uh, it focuses on character development or emulation. You look at Joshua as this great leader, and he was. And I don't mean to, to downplay that by any stretch of the imagination. That's fine, and it has its place, and it's good. But we also need to understand that when we read this passage, when we read the Bible, the primary focus is on the Lord himself. The Lord is revealing himself, not to them alone, but to us today. So ultimately, that's how we should read scripture. When we read scripture, we want to draw our gaze first and foremost to the Lord. We want to ask, okay, well, what does this say about God? What does it say about his character? 
What does it say about Christ? How in the world do we respond to this? And as we consider this miracle account, we should be asking and we should be searching the text, searching the words for what the Lord is revealing about himself. So let's just consider a few things from this passage. So first off, you you see in the Old Testament, the Lord's presence is made known by the Ark of the Covenant. It's a big deal. It's seen throughout the entire Old Testament. And so for this Ark, just picture a, a wooden chest that's covered in gold and covered in these elaborate designs. And inside this chest, inside this Ark, are different items from Israel's history. And this Ark is an emblem of the Lord's dwelling in Israel. It signifies his very presence with his people. So as we read the passage, we're aware of its significance because it's in the middle of the story the entire time. It's pretty cool. It dominates the miracle account. So as the ark enters the Jordan, as the ark enters the waters, the Lord is actually entering the land before the people. So it's clear that this is the Lord's doing. So you see that this miracle account, it's an act of redemption because the Lord loves to redeem his people. Now, I think this is important to note because it reminds us that we're not the ones who get us into the promised land. So whether you've been redeemed from bad circumstances or perhaps maybe you're even experiencing a time of of goodness or fruitfulness or success, you know, whatever it might be, our hope and our praise and our thankfulness need to always be directed towards the Lord. So you see, like the Israelites, you know, we're pretty good at getting ourselves kicked out of the promised land. So we forget, and we lose focus. We get caught up in who knows what, and we give our hearts to other pursuits. So you see, we can't for a second think that we brought ourselves in on our own. But you must have a humble reverence, a thankful heart for the Lord's activity and for his blessings, because it is by grace that we have been saved. The Lord redeems. And I also think this is important to mention too. And you'll notice that while God is the driving force of all redemption, uh, the people still have a part to play. So we mentioned the contents of the Ark of the Covenant, and one of those contents in the Ark is the tablets of stone with the law written on them, the tablets that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. So tablets of the law. So there's this idea that Israel's unique status before God, it's closely tied to the law. So there is this seemingly paradoxical, but there is this beautiful tension between God's bringing the people in the land and the people's responsibility to act and to take the land. So in his sovereignty, God is in control. God is is initiating all of this but he's also given us a part to play. So it's by grace, yes, that we have been saved, but you are also God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that you might walk in them. God in his sovereignty has given us a part to play. So we have the ark that is symbolizing God's presence, but we're also explicitly informed of God's presence. 
And we can see this just by looking at the dialogue of the text. Sure, you see the Lord speaking, so you know he's a main character. But also look at the details here. Look in verse 11. You see he's the Lord of all the earth. What does that tell us? That tells us that the Lord has authority and power and control. But look especially in verse 10. In verse 10, he is called the living God. So we mentioned that God's presence is not static. It is not static. God is not simply here in this room, you know, sitting in a chair, observing, talking, just like you and me. And I think most of us remember taking tests in school. I remember sitting at my desk and I'm quietly working. The teacher is slowly walking around the room, making sure that everyone is focused, that you're not cheating. As a student, I remember I'm sitting there working and the teacher kind of stops and looms over me. When the teacher's looking over your shoulder, you're, you're suddenly anxious. And you're just, you're, you know, you're hyper aware of everything and you start guessing all, or start second guessing all that you're doing. And it's just, it's nerve wracking. I think sometimes we have a tendency to view God's presence just like that. And that is not the case. God is not like that. He's not some looming authority figure that's there just to, just to keep you in check. And he's waiting for you to mess up. And the moment you do, he corrects you. It's not the case at all. You see, we serve a God who is actively working, who's redeeming, who's restoring all things. That is the living God and his presence among his people is a blessing. And it is such a comfort. It is such a comfort. And this living God, he is faithful to uphold his promises. So you'll notice down towards the end of chapter three that there are seven nations that are listed here. And these seven nations, they would have been daunting to the Israelites. And then on top of that, you have that that strange bit of seasonal information there and geographical information there. That's just there to show you that it's the time of the harvest and the waters of the river are high. So you have these nations, you have high waters. The stakes are high. You see, without the Lord, this is not gonna get done. This is not going to get done. So brothers and sisters, the, the Israelites, they're not told how. And maybe they had no idea how the Lord would pull this off. And I think we can relate to that just because we normally don't when, know how the Lord will do certain things when we wait on the Lord or we wait for him to answer our prayers. But we learn that the Lord will do exactly according to what he has promised so the scripture records this amazing miracle just to get this point across in a way that absolutely cannot be missed. He brings the people to the river and he stops the waters. And this miracle declares the presence and the character of God in a way that can't be missed. You see, he is living and active and he is mighty to act and he is mighty to save. The Lord loves his people. And I love this picture painted by one scholar who says this as he sums up the entirety of the events. The ark, the supreme symbol of God's indwelling is viewed as silently directing the whole proceedings as the priest 
stood firm on dry ground. The narrator's chief concern with this chapter has been to focus attention upon the stupendous miracles wrought under the watchful eye of the Lord whose ark led the way into the waters and then stopped in the riverbed while the whole nation had finished crossing over the Jordan. It's amazing. So as the people move through the water, we're going to move to our second point, and it is this, remembering God's mighty works. Remembering God's mighty works. So it's always a little funny to me when I read a story like this, and I see something so supernatural and something so otherworldly, and the people still need a monument to help them remember this. Because I'm reading this, I just think, how in the world could you forget something like that? How do you forget that? Do you really need a monument to recollect something like that? But then I think, yeah, yeah, you do. Because this monument isn't just for them. You know, it's a reminder for future generations. And what's even more convicting to me is I think about myself and how quickly I forget. So we'll come back to that. But first, I want to note the significance of the monument. You see, in verse seven, the term memorial here is used to describe this stone monument, the word memorial. So the word here, it's usually used in scripture to refer to expressions of worship or ritual expressions from the, from the Israelites. So you'll see this word used in discussions of things like, uh, like the Passover or in reference to the Exodus or perhaps the priestly garments and uh, the Israelites had a bunch of yearly and monthly feasts and offerings that they would do to commemorate the Lord's acts. That same word memorial is used to refer to those feasts and offerings. And the list could go on. So hear this, by, by using the same term here, the author is actually giving the Jordan crossing a ceremonial-like significance. So this monument, it's not by any means put on the same level as the, as the ceremonial feast or the offerings, but just like those events, the monument is intended to keep alive the memory of God's redemptive acts. This crossing of the Jordan is to be commemorated. And so despite what we typically think, uh, the Israelites, you know, they're not, they're not seeing miracles happen every day. So you have to keep in mind that the events in, in Scripture, they cover, you know, thousands of years in history. So when we read, we might see miracle after miracle after miracle. But you have to keep in mind from their perspective, perhaps these things are happening, happening generations apart. But it's in these miracle moments that God is going to make his presence manifest in such a way that he unmistakably reveals himself. You see, these miracles are reminded or recorded to remind all believers throughout all history that the living God is among them so they may fear and praise his name. So, back to my question. Would they really 
need a monument after such a miraculous act? Yeah. Yeah, they would. Because they forget. And because we forget. How often do we hear and read this word? which is essentially it's a memorial of God's actions in history. We hear it and we read it. And yet we go and we live as if it had no bearing on our lives. You know, if you think about it that way, it is quite humbling how quickly we forget. And one commentator says this. He says, perhaps the greatest enemy of faith might be forgetfulness. So just as in marriage, the real or the initial threat might not be infidelity, but it's simply a slow process of forgetting and a gradual failure to remember the preciousness of the other person. And if this is the case, then infidelity will soon follow. And if we know anything about Israel's history, it's one that continually fails to fear and see God's presence among them. The fact is, is that we are surrounded by God's presence and memorials that we overlook every single day. So please hear this. I don't point this out to condemn. I don't point this out to condemn, but I say this to open our eyes to the presence and the redemptive activity of the living God. And it is all around us. It is all around us. We are surrounded by such kinds of memorials. So just think about this. Consider what this church is. The church is an institution that is established by God. And consider this word. The word that we just read, we can look back and we can see how this word has altered the very course of history, how it testifies to such great events. And we hold this book in our very hands. Consider your fellow saints in this room and the work that God has done in their lives and how they act and how they care for you, how they serve the church. And consider the Lord's Supper, what it represents. Look at your own life. The Lord's work in your redemption, your baptism, what that represents. You see, we're surrounded by memorials that constantly point us to the present and living God. And how amazing it is. This changes everything when we begin to realize this. And what is more? Consider Christ. So just as the Israelites, they had this physical monument that looks back on this historical event, so we too, we look at the church, we look at the word of God, and these things also point us back to an historical event, and that is the person and the work of Christ. That is Emmanuel, God with us. The one who died for the sins of a rebellious people, a forgetful people. And then rose that we too might walk in newness of life and be united with him. You see, we partake in an event that is so much greater than the crossing of the Jordan River. So much greater. God is uniquely living and acting among his people. He's gracious to give us these memorials that help us remember his mighty works. 
It's amazing. And finally, let's get really practical. Let's just note the eminently practical side of things. So I, I, you know, I mentioned these formal memorials like the church and the Bible and the cross, but you know, we can take these principles, broaden it a little bit to help us see God's activity in our everyday lives. So each day, we're to look for and be reminded of God's presence in our lives. So simply just ask yourself this, what are the memorials in your life? What are the memorials in your life? And I would suggest to you that you don't have to look very far. So what about your family? When you see family portraits, when you go home this afternoon and you walk in your door and you see the portrait on the wall or on the fridge, do you simply see a nice picture, a nice piece of decoration? Or when you see those photos, do you see God's blessing and his provision? And you become moved to worship for the family and the friends that God has given you. So every now and then, (laughs) I looked out at my wedding ring, and I never wore rings prior to marriage. So when I first got married, man, I, I could feel it. I'm constantly just playing with it. I know it's there. There's something new. It's out of the ordinary. I know it's there. But over time, you get used to it. And sometimes, you know, you might forget that it's, it's there and it just becomes a part of you, you know? But that, friends, this is a symbol of God's provision for me, of God's activity in my life. And Lauren, my beautiful bride, the love of my life, that's amazing. And ultimately, this is going to reflect something much greater, which is Christ's love for his church. And so like many people too, I have this, uh, I have this box and it's full, of, it's full of like ticket stubs and pictures and you know, there's other miscellaneous items that just hold memories from different points in my life. And every now and then I can look back on those and see the way the Lord has used different events in my life. And uh, one of the most memorable things that I keep with this is a series of journals and it's not just, you know, they're not just normal journal, journal entries. I'm not writing down what I had for lunch that day, but they're just thoughts. And uh, there's moments in my life that I'd, I thought, well, hey, this is significant. Or the Lord's teaching me this that I would record in those journals. So I have them all there. And I remember uh, before I was going to... Uh, tour the seminary campus. I'm still deciding if I'm going to go there. I'm still kind of on the fence. So before I tour the campus, the night before, I'm sitting in a hotel room, and I pull out these journals, and I start flipping through them. And man, there was about 10 or 15 years of records of the Lord's faithfulness in these journals. It was amazing, but it was also convicting because I'm holding 10 to 15 years of written records And I'd forgotten most of them. I'd forgotten most of them. You see, we need constant reminders. Finally, you might look at me and say like, okay, you know, all these things are good, but what about the bad stuff? What about the bad stuff? So, you know, I speak of families, but you know, maybe your family is split or they're fighting or they're estranged. You know, I mentioned my wife, 
but perhaps you've longed for and you've prayed for the Lord to give you someone, but it just hasn't happened. Or maybe you do have a spouse, but things are tough. Perhaps you're anxious or you're worried and you've cried out to the Lord a hundred times and there is no deliverance. You look around and there is not a monument to speak of. And I would just say, friend, my heart goes out to you and I want to reassure you. Not only is God here, but he's the living God who's actively working to redeem and to restore. So let me assure you, Christian, that you do have a memorial to speak of wherever you are, wherever you are. And it is the cross. It's the word of God that is written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, that we might have hope wherever we are. And hear this, this invitation to for redemption, it extends to everybody. So we actually read later on in chapter four, it's actually verse 24. We read that this memorial that's set up is not just for the Israelites, but it's set up that all people may know the hand of the Lord is mighty. You see, Christ offers redemption for all. So to the one who is awaiting redemption, I just encourage you to hold fast. Hold fast because God's present. And oh, there's hope. There is hope. And to everyone here, I would just encourage you to look with new eyes at your present circumstances and see afresh the Lord's presence in your life. And let this presence be a comfort and a constant reminder of the gospel message that makes this presence possible. So really, even before you go home, you know, I would encourage you to look around this room you know, as you stay after, as you talk to your friends, as you talk to your pastors, look for those evidences of grace that are all around you. Because each one of those, each one of those moments, they point to God's activity among his people. It's everywhere. We just got to open our eyes and see it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come here and preach your word. Lord, I thank you for this church, how welcoming they have been. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your presence. And Lord, give us a heart that treasures Christ. He's the one who makes this redemption and this fellowship possible. So thank you, God, for loving your people, never leaving us alone. So please give us hearts that rejoice at your presence and rejoice at your works. Amen.